0: Back with you. Um, I've been here a couple of times before, but um, um, that, was a, that was a wonderful opportunity to be able to sing some truths together, to be able to rejoice in the truth of God's word. Um, my name is Tim Hodge, and uh, I am a friend, friend of um, uh, Adam and Megan's uh, for a number of years. Um, I'm also, some of you might be familiar with um, uh, Andrew Saunders, Pastor Andrew Saunders. Um, I got to hire him last fall to come into my uh, office, and he and I work together on an almost daily basis uh, for our family of churches, and so um, it's great to be able to be with you here today. A couple of things I just wanted to show here, if my slides are working there. Um, They're looking back, there we go. So a couple of things here. There we go. It is working. We were waiting for some technical something to happen, but that's all right. This is my family. Um, my wife Heidi, and then I have four kids ranging from 17 down to eight, uh, keeping us busy there. Um, and. Uh uh, what I want to do just uh, uh, for a little bit, I want to share with you just quickly before I get into our scripture passage today, I would like to just share with you four things about our, our global and our national family of churches. Uh, Pastor Adam asked me to just share a few things about that. And uh, so I just want to cover a couple of things here. Firstly, just, uh, just by way of summary, this church, Journey Church, is part of a family, a broader family, nationally. Uh, we are known as the Karis Fellowship, and you see up on the screen there. The Caris Fellowship is an association of approximately 250 churches and ministries in the U.S. and Canada who share a commitment to biblical truth, biblical relationship, and biblical mission. And um, we uh, we have a number of things that happen during the year. We have some pastors' gatherings. We have leadership training. We have a whole lot of different things that take place. One of the things that just happened in July, um, I got to help um, organize our uh, access conference out in Indiana, and uh, Adam and and Megan were out there with their families. Um, I just want to show you uh, just a quick little, this is about a two-minute little highlight video, and uh, I clipped it so that it was shorter, so it's only about two minutes instead of five, okay? So it's a bit of a rough edit there, and uh, uh, take note at the end there, see if you see somebody that you might recognize in our official promo video, here we go. you some glances and some glimpses of uh, some of the gathering that happened in july had about 550 people uh, there leaders and pastors and families from all around the country our gathering was on the uh, campus of grace college and theological seminary in uh, one of their uh, facilities there so it doesn't look like many people there that's because the auditorium seats like 3,000. so we uh,
1: I'd love for us to be a people who are like waterfalls, where we enjoy that the truth in God's word—that water satisfies our soul, and we can't help but
0: keep it in. It just trickles out to all those around us, and then it continues flowing downstream until
1: it reaches a world that is lost without it. I care only about that but when we keep our eyes focused on christ and we are spurring each other on in that way then we can become more unified
0: here. Um, the Karis movement uh, traces its family, roots back to Germany, where in 1708 a small group of sincere Christ followers committed to form a church that would be faithful to the teachings of the New Testament. And uh, today our Charis our, um, our Fellowship partners with our glo- global um, family through a collaborative initiative known as the Karis Alliance. Um, I have the privilege of being on the, uh, the executive team for the Caris Alliance, so I'm one of three, um, rep- or a couple of representatives from the US and Canada that serve on this global uh, family. And um, I get the opportunity actually this coming March, uh, we have a gathering every five years we try to do this, but we have a gathering in uh, Kenya where we're going to gather about 33 different countries, representatives together, just to talk about our global family and what we can be doing to further the ministry that's taking place around the world. I have one more video for you and this is sort of one that uh, just encapsulates a little bit of the story of our global family. I don't know about you, but I like to be part of something bigger. It's always nice to be part of something—a bigger effort, a broader effort—and Journey Church. You're part of a, you're part of a, nas- a, a, a sort of a regional group of churches. You're part of a national group of churches, and then you're part of a global family of churches. And the stuff that you guys are doing, the stuff that you're uh, participating with, the the input that different people give helps to make an impact around the world. So let me just show this little video here, uh, a little bit about um, the Karis alliance and how it has grown over the years.
1: Our church is part of a vibrant global movement. Let's explore how our movement has grown around the world. The spiritual fathers of our movement fled religious persecution in Germany, arriving in the Americas in 1719. Almost 200 years later, God gave us a passion for focusing on the spiritual needs of people around the world. That's when we decided to get serious about the last command of Jesus. Go, and make disciples of all nations. Our first cross-cultural workers arrived in Argentina in 1909. Despite sometimes violent resistance, these hardy pioneers succeeded in making disciples, planting new churches, and blessing communities. By 1918, another team was sailing for the heart of Africa. They arrived during an era when Africa was still dominated by colonial powers. Although they faced incredible obstacles, and one out of five were buried in African soil, today there are more Karas Alliance churches in Africa than in the rest of the world combined. For several decades, the opportunities and needs of Argentina and Central Africa occupied all of the prayer financial resources and workers our small movement could muster. But this changed dramatically after World War II, as we sent workers to Brazil, to Mexico, to France and to Germany. During this time, countries were gaining independence in Africa. That's why our workers and churches were divided into two new countries, the Central African Republic and Chad. The Karas Alliance was growing. Before long, we were ready to cross another vast ocean, the Pacific, and share the good news of Jesus Christ in the vast region of Asia. Our first workers were deployed to Japan and the Philippines, and not long after, we entered Kyrgyzstan, Cambodia, Turkey, Thailand, and Vietnam. But what was happening in other parts of the world? Something rather amazing. Churches we helped to plant began sending their own workers to other countries, Mexicans to Guatemala, Argentines to Uruguay, and Central Africans to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this trend continues. Central Africans also entered the Republic of Congo. Brazilians joined Argentines in Chile, and we discovered Karas Alliance churches in Cameroon. What a rich blessing to be part of a movement so committed to making disciples around the world. But wait, the movement continues to grow. We also entered Portugal, 1990, the Czech Republic, Canada, Ireland, Nigeria, Haiti, Trinidad, the Sudan, the Bahamas, Vietnam and Poland. Yes, our church is proud to form part of a movement committed to spread the knowledge and glory of God around the world. A global movement we call the Karas Alliance.
0: Alright, what do you think when you see something like that? I don't know about you, but I'm like, wow, that is awesome. And I'm so glad to be part of this family that's making a difference around the world. Some of those situations, some of those countries that we're active in are very difficult situations, very challenged situations. Uh, Some of our workers are in places where we have to obscure their identities for their safety, Um, but uh, God is doing some incredible things through our broader family of churches. Uh, One more slide here, um, just when it comes to some of the two things that, y- that we unite around globally. We unite ar- around a document called the Commitment to Common Mission which outlines our mutual commitments to church planning, leadership development and doing good in our communities. And then we also unite around the Commitment to Common Identity which is kind of our, our statement of faith our summary of our biblical convictions and commitments and common practices okay? So I just wanted to give you a little summary there um, of just uh, who you're part of a little bit broader there and also because that's part of my job is to share this stuff I love it. But this morning, um, you have been uh, recently going through a message series that I believe challenges our tendency to have a small view of Jesus. Is that correct? What's the series been called? Bigger. Bigger, Bigger. okay. And this morning, I'd like us to take a little bit of a look at Colossians chapter 3. It's going to be up on the screen, but you're welcome to turn there as well in your own Bibles if you'd like to. But Colossians chapter 3 And uh, this this passage here discusses the incredible life change that takes place when we have a bigger view of who Jesus is, and when we allow that view to impact us. This chapter in the book of Colossians highlights some of the transformation that should take place in our lives when we truly surrender our lives to Jesus. And just a, a comment here, if you are here today and you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is talking to those who have taken that step. And it's my hope that as you're listening, maybe there'll be some things that help you ask some questions and explore further what it is to begin a relationship with Jesus. But the book of Colossians is a significantly Christocentric letter. It is, uh, it is focused on the centrality of Christ. And we know that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul during the time when he was in prison. And he wrote it to this little church in the town of Colossae. And it was a letter because he was concerned about them. He was concerned about some of the influences that were trying to bring them down. And he wrote to encourage them and to strengthen them and also to instruct them in what things should look like. But before we look at chapter 3, which is our focus today, I just want to give a little bit of context, because you can't really jump straight into chapter 3 without knowing a little bit about chapter 2 and a little bit about chapter 1. And so I just want to mention just briefly here that chapter 1 talks about the preeminence of Christ. It talks about how the person and nature of Jesus surpasses all other things. And uh, just a verse here from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, verse 16, and I'm going to ask if, uh, if you're able to have a look up on the screen here. Let's read this out together, a few verses here. Colossians chapter 1, here we go. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in His sight without blemish and free from accusation
1: if you continue
0: in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel this here is uh, basically Jesus discusses how the believers in Colossae had been reconciled with God, their relationship had been restored, it's kind of that before after, here's what things were like before and now after, this is what has taken place And moving on to chapter 2, Paul encourages the believers to continue following Jesus with these words. He says this, he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. It was that urge there, hey guys, change has taken place. You once were this and now you're this, and I'm encouraging what Paul says to continue in that. Continue with those changes. Continue to live your lives in Him. The third chapter then moves on to directly discuss, in some very practical terms, what things should look like when we live in the light of the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look now in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. And I am going to ask again if you're able to or would like to, let's uh, let's read aloud uh, from the screen here, these first four verses. Here we go. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with God in with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. For those who are followers of Jesus, those who have put their trust in him, who have surrendered their lives to him, this is part of a dramatic shift that should take place. Our thinking should be modified. Our thinking should shift from what it was to something new. And here's what I want to suggest to you. And that is this, this quote here, For true Christians, life is no longer all about what is, but all about what will be. It's, it's a future thing. It's a shift from just looking around at the everyday, trying to get through today for the sake of getting through today, or focused on all the details of us. But it's, it's intended to be something about what will be. It's intended to be a focus on what is to come. It's, it's, it is about living not in the past and not just for the present, but in light of the future that Jesus has promised to all who trust in him. Now, in our culture, most people aren't living that way. Most, in our culture, most people live for what? Today and now. And we want what we want. And when do we want it? Now. We want it now. Okay, and that's how our culture influences us. And, and as has been the case uh, throughout history, the attitudes of culture can have a way of oftentimes infiltrating into the life of the church. We get influenced by people around us. We get influenced by the culture in which we live. And it can be very easy for followers of Jesus to be more fixed on what is happening today than we are on what we're supposed to be fixing our thoughts and our attention on. We see what is taught repeatedly in Scripture is that this, the focus of the follower of Jesus should be on what is next, not just what is now. Okay? If you're a follower of Jesus, your focus shouldn't just be on today. Your focus should be on what is to come. And that is repeated throughout Scripture, especially during difficult times. Have a look at, uh, we we just just, uh, looked at it a moment ago, but when Paul said in Colossians 3, set your heart where? On things above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And then set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Throughout Scripture, when you see the word heart, or when you see the word mind, they are used to describe sort of that all of you sort of thing. So, so everything about you should be fixed on things above. And I wonder for you and I. I mean, do do we see most Christians in the world? Do we most see Christians in our country? Is that the way that we live? Is that the way that things are for you and I? Uh, do we live our lives according to this passage of scripture, or perhaps there, is there some work to do? Are there some ways in which we need to adjust our focus? We need to shift a little bit further into what Jesus has encouraged us to do when it comes to where our focus should be. Verse 3 says this, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, I love that, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's talking about what is to come. And I wonder how our lives would be different if we truly comprehended that. These verses speak of the massive life change that knowing Jesus brings. It's not merely an addition of a little dose of Jesus. It's not really just an add-on of a little bit of of good Christian stuff or some teachings of the Bible. It It is a change. It is a shift, a radical shift in how we're to live our lives. When someone responds to the truth of the gospel and surrenders their life to Jesus, Transformation takes place. Some of it is right away, and some of it is incremental. There is immediate transformation that takes place when somebody surrenders their life to Jesus. There is transformation from being unsaved to saved, from being unforgiven to forgiven, from being a stranger to being referred to as a child of God. And then there's a whole lot of other things too. Being sealed with the Spirit and a whole lot of other things that the the Scriptures teach takes place the moment we (coughs) surrender our lives to God. But then there is also that progressive change, that incremental change, that incremental transformation when we embark on what is often referred to as that journey of sanctification. You know what sanctification is? It's that pursuit of being holy, that pursuit of being like Jesus wants us to be. And we take steps in that. And sometimes we take multiple steps forward and then we, we take some steps back. Because it's not something that is is enforced on us. It is something that we are encouraged and asked to do. Scripture tells us that uh, we are to be filled with the Spirit. That's an instruction to be filled with the Spirit. And that's talking about being willing to say, Holy Spirit, I want you to direct how I live. I want you to direct the things that I say. I want you to direct the way that I think. I want you to direct my attitudes and my actions. And that's something that we're invited to do. And as we're invited in that, we can become more and more like Jesus as a result with the power of the Holy Spirit active in our lives. And this is where our daily personal choices come into play. I believe that that as we spend more time in relationship with God, as we spend more time looking at his word and saying, God, what do you want me to do in light of what you have written here? I believe that transformation takes place and I believe we end up being more and more like Jesus every day. Have you known somebody that when they first took that step, maybe it's you, but when, you, when they first took that step of a relationship with Jesus, things were pretty rough and rugged. And then as time went on and as they spent more time studying God's Word, you got to see that their lives looked different. You got to see that things kind of shifted and there was much more of a Christ-like attitude represented there. That's how it's supposed to be. We're instructed in, uh, in this passage here to set your mind on the, your, your heart on things above. And here's just a, a couple of the, uh, the words that are wrapped up in there it's Italian, to seek after, to look forward, to strive towards. You get that idea there? We actually, it was read in that passage from Philippians there to press on towards the goal. It's that idea of, of moving ahead there. And again, the the ano, the uh, the above, the, the the place above, where it says strive, we are to push forward, we are to look forward to those things. That's how followers of Jesus are supposed to live. And I wonder, have you have you met people like that before? Have you interacted and hung out with people who live like that? I'm thinking right now of a lady that um, I got to know when I lived out in Indiana a number of years ago when I was in college, and her name was her name was Angie Garber. And Angie um, was a missionary to the Navajos for most of her adult life. Uh, when I got to know her, she was in her 80s. Um, she had polio when she was a kid, so she was shriveled up and hunched over there, and um, and uh, and she had a hard time sort of moving around. And I got to I got to know her in the retirement community where she lived. But um, it was fascinating when I would go and visit that retirement community. There were two ladies that I that I um, interacted with. There was Angie and then there was Edith. Now, Edith did not exhibit the qualities that Angie did. Edith, when you got there, she was always negative and complaining, and um, there was always something to gripe about. And uh, and when I'd visit with Edith, um, it was always, I, I wanted to encourage her, but it was always a difficult conversation. It was always hard. And you kind of left there when you were able to leave, He kind of left there, sort of feeling a little bit, sort of, I don't know, pulled down a little bit more. It was hard to leave sometimes because um, whenever I would say I need to go now, she would pretend like she didn't hear and start a new conversation with a new topic. (laughs) She was very crafty with that. But when I would go up the hall and then I would go and visit with Angie, Angie was just a delight. And what was it that made her such a delight? Well, part of it is because she lived looking forward to the place above. You could not have a conversation with her without her pointing with excitement about the fact that Jesus is coming again and he has prepared an incredible place for us and I just can't wait to get there. I'll tell you what, I walked out of Angie's room and it's like, wow, that is awesome. And it's a very different impact there. But that's how followers of Jesus are are supposed to live. And in this letter to the Colossians and through this letter to us, Paul makes the point that the truth of the resurrection should change everything about how we live our lives each day. Let me say that again. The truth of the resurrection should change everything about how we live our lives each day. It should change change the way that we treat each other. It should change how we respond to problems and persecutions. And if you if you study in Scripture there, you'll see that oftentimes those that were being written to in the book of Hebrews and several of Paul's letters were facing massive persecutions. Life was not good and life was not necessarily going to get better because of all of the influences in the world at that time. And the answer there was not, hey, just, just make the world a better place. The answer was, in, in a lot of those passages press on because what's coming is better. How we view what is to come should affect everything about how we live our lives today. One of my pastor friends put it this way. He said this, what we, what we choose to focus on determines everything else. What we choose to focus on determines everything else. You focus on the wrong thing, everything else is going to be impacted by that. You focus on the right thing, like my friend Angie did, and it's going to impact the relationships you have. It's going to impact how you respond to the challenges that come and all sorts of things like that. I could also say with this here that, it, that who we choose to focus on determines everything else. And I wonder where your focus is. Is your focus where it needs to be? Scripture is clear about what that focus should be. We read earlier, set your heart on things above. And uh, you may be familiar with this passage. Seek first what? Seek first the kingdom 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 of God God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Jumping back into the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew there. Instruction from Jesus. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And what's that next verse? Read it out loud with me. For where Where your your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you choose to focus is going to determine everything else. The rest of the passage in Colossians 3 kind of flows out of this idea. It's the practical application of these truths. And as we develop a, a, a bigger view of Jesus and as we surrender every part of our lives to him, things will change. Looking at uh, verse 5 of chapter 3 here, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And uh, it's always good to be aware of, and, you, and you've probably heard this before, but whenever you see in Scripture, whenever you see therefore, you should ask, What's the therefore Therefore. Okay, you've probably heard that before, but uh, it's basically saying that what Paul is going into now in these following verses is based on that reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ and what what has all happened there. Based on that, therefore, because of that, there are going to be implications, there are going to be changes. And this is part of the life transformation that Jesus calls us to. There's some words and teachings in the Bible that are kind of soft and, and gentle, and there's others that are kind of harsh. And I want to tell you that wrapped up in the original language here, of, uh, in the original Greek here, "put to death" there is a harsh term. It's actually, it's actually the uh, the term necrosate. And have you heard of necrosis before? Have You heard of that word? Necrosis. Do you know what it is? It's basically the death of cells and tissue. An example of that might be um, gangrene. Have you heard of gangrene before? Gangrene is something that everybody wants, isn't it? What I want for Christmas is some gangrene. Is that right? No, it's not. Gangrene is, 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 is horrific. When, when you have gangrene in a part of your body, what has to happen? It has to be amputated. It has to be cut out. It has to be taken seriously, why? Because if you do not, it will kill you. In the Civil War, before before they fully understood what uh, what germs and disease and bacteria and all that sort of stuff was going on there, do you know that those who were in Civil War hospital with gangrene, the mortality rate was 45%. 45% who developed gangrene anywhere in their body died as a result because it needed to be cut out. And by the way, they were not pretty big on cutting off limbs in the Civil War, correct? You see those pictures there. So they did address it. They just didn't address it in the way that it needed to be. Put to death, cut off, get rid of, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then Paul kind of provides a quick list here of some things that can cause spiritual gangrene. These are serious things that when these are evident in somebody's life, they are likely to cause destruction. Let's have a quick look at them here. You're going to see here sexual immorality. The word there is pornea, which we get other words from there, as you know. And it's the idea of to commit any sexual sin. When you see sexual immorality present in your life or the lives of those around you, get ready because it causes spiritual gangrene, it causes damage. And our, in our culture and our society, when we ignore this, what happens? Is that culture sort of thriving with happiness and joy? People who pursue living lives of sexual morality does it all end up happily ever after? No, it doesn't. It causes destruction. Paul's list continues on here. Akatharsia, the idea of impurity, moral impurity, especially in relationship to sexual sin. When you see impurity, it is something that needs to be dealt with. He goes on here, the word, the English word lust there. Pathos is the Greek word. Lust that dishonor those who indulge in them. He goes on here and he says, epithumia, to strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else. The idea of evil desires there. And he goes on to to pleinexia. The idea of greed, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. Is it wrong to be rich and well-off? Is it wrong? No. No, it's not. But when it's irrespective of need or when it is done in a selfish and accumulating manner, that's when there can be some major issues that need to be dealt with there. And the passage goes on here and says, which is idolatry? These things, he says, which is... Idolatry, the worship of things other than the one true God. So this quick list here that Paul says, put to death therefore these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is an idolatry. That's a that's a hit list of big things. Now, now know here that these are the things that break up families. Would you agree with that? These are the things that destroy. And are destroying the culture and the lives of people all around us. These are the things that the enemy wants you and I to embrace and have an appetite for. And these are the things that that make God angry. Things that he will not overlook. Have a look at verse 6 here. Because of these things that we just looked at, the wrath of God is coming. But at this juncture, Paul points to the change that's already taken place in the lives of these believers in Colossae would surrender their lives to Jesus and I love this he says this you used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived I love that how it's sort of pointing back guys this those words used to describe you they don't anymore most followers of Jesus clearly understand the dangers of sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed don't we, we get that and, I, and probably there's uh, nobody's here today or listening online that's going to say, yeah, let me argue that one with you. Because we, we have clarity on that, okay? But have a look at where Paul goes next. In verse 8, he says this He says, but now you must also, I'm gonna go backwards here, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. He said, there's more, but wait, there's more. Don't you love those ads on TV? But wait, there's more. <laughs> Those big ones, Paul says, that was part of your story before. But I'm going to now address some things that we all deal with at some level in some way. And he goes on and he says that we must also rid ourselves of these kinds of things. And ridding ridding ourselves is the idea of stop doing what you've been accustomed to doing. And I don't know about you, but some of the things that we're going to look at here in a moment, you had a glance a moment ago there, sometimes there are things, there's attitudes, there's responses, there's stuff that we wrestle with in our own way. Sometimes it's because it was what was modeled to us by our parents or those that were influential in our lives growing up. And it's stuff that we need to continue to wrestle with, and God wants us to wrestle our way through that so that we can make sure that these things are not causing... A negative impact in our lives and in the lives of those around us. The first one he lists is anger. Um, is it wrong to be angry, by the way? Is it wrong to be angry? No. no, it's not wrong to be angry. Anger is something that God has created. It's good to be angry. It is wrong to be angry in the wrong way about the wrong things. Is that fair to say? And anger is one of those emotions that can quickly tip over to where we start expressing that in ways that are not godly, that are not honoring to Christ, and that cause all sorts of damage. And when when we see this word showing up here in Colossians 3, it's actually not talking about the act of being angry. You remember Jesus in the temple with the money changes there? Was Jesus angry? Yes, he was. He was angry about the right things for the right reasons. And he took action on that but this word here is actually kind of more talking about that living in a state of angeriness. angriness i mentioned before about angie who was wonderful to visit in that retirement uh, community there and how uplifting it was have you interacted with people who live in the state of angriness have you interacted with some of those that the, they just there's just an anger there okay it's something and is that pleasant by the way is that enjoyable I don't think anybody says, yeah, sign me up for extra time with people like that. (laughs) Anger. Other things that we must rid ourselves of. Rage. Intense anger with outbursts of fury. I thought that was a good definition. Intense anger with outbursts of fury. We see that oftentimes uh, portrayed in social media when it comes to videos of road rage. Have you uh, seen some road rage before? when you see that intense anger with outbursts of fury. And and there are times where this happens even in the lives of believers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wonder, I was, I was thinking about this, how many how many dads have I been aware of who have destroyed the relationship with their children because of this trip? How many times have we seen people that, that maybe they're angry because something happened that they should be angry about, but they let it tip over into rage and they react in a way that causes danger and causes devastation. Anyway, Paul's list continues. He says, you must rid yourself of malice, being being a hateful, wicked person. You must rid yourself of, you have to go back here. This is doing its own thing. You must rid yourself of slander. The word there is blasphemia. It's the idea of evil speaking or verbal abuse or speaking in order to injure. Are we ever tempted, as followers of Jesus, to speak in order to injure someone? I don't know about you, but there's times where that's pretty tempting. And I wish I could say there's times w- that, I, that I've never done that before, and I never do it again, but I know that that can be a wrestle. Sometimes, when we just want to insert that little comment, mm-hmm. or we just want to say that little thing to correct the record or whatever, or to make ourselves look a little bit shinier, than the person that, that we're that we're referencing there. And we are to do what with that attitude? We are to do what with that practice? We are to rid ourselves. That's something that is on that is on us through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are to take action to say, when I see that, I need to get rid of them. <coughs> and one more here for this list. Paul loves lists, he loves of these things, he goes on here and he says we must rid ourselves of a- a filthy language from your lips and one commentator that I read said this it's kind of the idea of shameful speech involving culturally disapproved themes or dirty talk now I, I worked at um, I worked uh, uh, for General Motors for about six years in Australia before I came over to the States here I, uh, I was a m- uh, metal worker I got my trade there in Australia and then I, um, and then I worked in the press shop and I worked around some pretty rough individuals there, I'll tell you that. Some of the guys that I worked with and some of the conversation that happened at our break, uh, in the break room and wherever else or just in, in the shop in general um, certainly went down a path that this describes here. And, um, and what saddens me over, my, over the years as a follower of Jesus and I've served as a pastor for 19 years Um, What saddens me is when I see people who are followers of Jesus who revel in this as well. It's almost like, you know what, there's nothing wrong with this, it's all fine, and they cross these lines when it comes to the speech, the the stuff that that exits from their lips, the things that we laugh about. Again, what does Paul say about that? We need to get rid of it. Uh Get rid of it. Um, If you were to have a uh, um, cockroach infestation in Sound
1: fun?
0: Yeah. No. If you had cockroaches everywhere, like crawling up the walls or whatever, what would you want to do with them? You would want to get
1: rid, get rid of them,
0: okay? Would you want to get rid of like most of them? That's good enough, isn't it? No. Just get rid, of, get rid of most of them and we'll just put up with the rest. Getting rid of something like that means, you know what, I want it all gone. I want it all out of there. And that's the same my attitude here. Get rid of these things. When these things rear their heads, they should be like the check engine light in our our lives. When the check engine light in your car goes on, what do you think? What do you do? You ignore it, don't you? You keep driving and driving and (laughs) driving and hope that it will switch off again. Is that what you do? I I do that sometimes. (laughs) But... The check engine light there is is it, it may there may not be an issue, but when a check engine light goes off it's usually an indication that something's happening and you should probably check it out before you go too many miles down the road. Fair to say? Yes. And if we're wise when the check engine light goes on, you take it to the shop or you check it out yourself and do whatever and you investigate. Because if something bad is happening in that engine and you do not address it and you just cruise on down the highway, what's likely to happen? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, these things that Paul just referenced there can be some check engine lights. There's stuff when, when anger crosses from something that is good to be angry about to, to a way in which that anger is leaching out in a way that is not Christ like. It's a check engine light. something we need to evaluate, we need to look at. It's a warning that things need to be looked at quickly or there's a risk of greater damage. One other thing I just want to mention this morning, um, uh, just to think about here. This one catches up. There we go. Anyone who is in Christ should view sin as seriously as He does. Say that again. Anyone who is in Christ, which Colossians was talking about, and I think your series of of bigger and the idea of having a bigger view of Jesus and what it means to, to to follow such an incredible Creator. Anyone who is in Christ should view sin as seriously as Jesus does. And I think sometimes you and I can very easily begin to dismiss things. Oh, it's really not that bad. Oh, it's okay. Um, I find one of the areas where this becomes very challenging is when it comes to the the media that we consume. Never before have we had so much stuff available, a button click away or a finger tap away. Correct? Correct. When I was a kid, I mean, honestly, when I was a kid, I, I sound really old saying this, but we had a black and white TV till I was like 10. Mm-hmm. And it was across the room there. And when you wanted to change channels, guess what you had to do?
1: Get up, Get up. Get up, Get up and go them. over there. And when it started going fuzzy, guess what you had to do? Play
0: the antenna. Uh, Play the <laughs> antenna or thump the floor and it would come back on there, and, and the And the, the, the channels that we had in Australia, we had the whole massive choice of four channels live to air channels and no cable, no anything else like that. That's what I grew up with. Today, what do we have available? (laughs) (laughs) And there's still nothing good to watch. (laughs) um, But I I do find that uh, it's very easy to struggle in this area when it comes to um, the things that we watch. Sometimes we can watch stuff that crosses some lines that we should probably say, you know what, God, maybe this isn't the best thing for me to binge-watch. Maybe this is something that that the way in which um, uh, sexual immorality is a per- portrayed in this as a, as a really good thing, maybe that's something I don't need to revel in. And I'm not saying be l- I'm not talking about being legalistic and saying, okay, well I'm just going to live in a bunker and not I'm saying just making those wise, cho- wise choices because there are times when stuff can begin to negatively influence the way we think and begin to dilute our viewers of sin and what is appropriate and what is not. And I think we need to be on guard on that. If you have a bigger and a more accurate view of who Jesus is, these things should um, sort of be taking place. Paul continues his instruction here. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump down here. Skipped over a bit. Um, John Owen Owen was a theologian who lived in the 1600s, and he wrote a little 86-page book called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. Today, the word mortify just means to embarrass or to shame, but in the 17th century English, it means to kill. And his book, written back in the 1600s, was about believers needing to kill sin in their lives. This is one of his quotes here. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. I don't like gangrene. You need to deal with it, or it is going to cause destruction in your life and in the lives of those around you. And with the help and the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're to be actively engaged in the daily work of killing sin in our lives. We're not to do it on our own. We're not to do it out of legalistic sort of maybe I can earn favor with God. We need to do it from the right motives, but we need to be actively killing sin in our lives. And that means making daily choices to do and to say and to act and to think in a way that honors God and in a way that demonstrates that we have set our heart where on things above, where Christ is. That we are living our lives in light of the glories that God has promised and that his children can confidently anticipate. That we're living our lives more as Angies than as Ediths, as I mentioned earlier. That idea of fixing our thoughts, set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above, and as was read out earlier from Colossians, that pressing on towards the goal. Um, I, I live a little bit a um, little bit further uh, west of you here. I live in Lancaster County in the town of New Holland. I'm in the middle of Amish land, <laughs> and horses and buggies up my street all the time. I overtook about uh, 10 to 15 to get here this morning. It's um, just, uh, just different culture, different culture there. One of the things that we see this time of year, and especially even a couple of months ago, is the farmers that are plowing their fields. And uh, it's unique because instead of the massive tractors, it's the, it's the plow with the, with the uh, mules pulling it. And what, is, what, is the, what do the farmers do when they're plowing a field with the mules and a plow? Do they just hitch up the, the plow and sit on it and go, OK, off you go and let the mules just go wherever they want? Is that what they do? No, what do they do? They direct
1: Direct
0: it. They direct it. And where do they direct it?
1: Straight.
0: Straight, okay. And how do they direct it straight? Brains. Brains, that's good. But I would say that they need to look ahead. They are looking to the other side of the field. They are looking with something focused in mind there. And they're saying, you know what? That is where I need to fix my attention and I'm going to hold these reins, and we're going to head off there in a nice straight line. They don't just go wherever they want. What would that field look like, by the way? (laughs) Those cornrows, if uh, if you just took the thing wherever. There is intentionality with looking and focusing on, this is where I need to be heading, and this is where I need to be fixing my thoughts. And that is what Colossians 3 is encouraging us to do. To live this way involves making a choice to go about life in a different way. And I am I am nearly done here. I've got a couple more verses to look at, um, but uh, let's uh, let's jump into one here. Oh, come on, playing games with me. I press it once and it jumps like three. But anyway, Colossians three, verse nine: Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. There's this taking off, shedding these things, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's what this whole book is about. That's what this whole chapter is about. When you fo- choose to follow Jesus, there is a getting rid of stuff, taking off the old, and putting on the new. And that's where Paul's going to go here in this next sort of section. He says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, enslaved or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And in this putting off thing, and the putting on things, um, people, people who want to, to lose weight make decisions about putting off stuff. Is that fair to say? And I, I just recently made that decision of, um, a number of months ago, got to shed about 40 pounds. And that 40 pounds was not like, ooh this is easy. That 40 pounds was shed by what? Hard work. Hard work saying, you know what, I'm going to say no to this say no to like sugar in my coffee, I'm going to say no to ice cream I'm going to say no to fried food for a time it was hard I went to, um, in May during this time, I went to Alaska uh, for about a, um, a week there to visit our churches up there, and there were some pretty delicious meals available up there and do you know what I did while I was up there? I said no to a whole lot of things and it was hard, and it was difficult, but it led to a good result. At least I think it's a better result there. People who want to lose weight have made a decision to put off things that are enticing to to say no to things that will do damage over time. And in the same way, as we put off certain things, we also need to put on certain things. Because part of what I did during those... Um, uh, months of trying to bring down my pounds a little bit there was the stuff that I ate was very deliberate and on purpose. Very specific. And it was what I needed and it wasn't a whole lot more. And what we're going to look at here as we uh, wrap up in a few minutes here is, is the putting on aspect um, is part of that life-changing work that Jesus done, does in our lives. When we have that bigger view of Jesus, he wants us to embrace these things. Um, I'm missing a slide, it might show up in a moment. Oh, I'm just going to read it out loud here. Therefore, in verse 12 says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let me say that again. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves. Wrap yourselves up in these things. Make sure these are all the things that people see when they look at you. Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness. And patience. And can I just ask the question? Is that what people see when they look at you? When people interact with you, what do they see? Do they see compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Or do they see other things? We know what those things look like. And if you sort of think about it, all of those things kind of look like Jesus, don't they? When you think of Jesus, compassion, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. And those are the kinds of qualities that we should be putting on. Verse 13 here, am on the screen. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is part of that, what we are supposed to put on. And when I preach on this topic, I often say that forgiving others, see if you agree with this, forgiving others is one of the hardest things we're called to do. Do you agree with that? I think it is. I can't tell you how many counseling sessions I have been in on helping people, and they're like, yes, I want to move ahead in my life, I want to honor Jesus, I want to do this. And it comes to a step of needing to forgive those who have hurt them. And I can't tell you how many times people have been like, do it. But this is part of the transformation that God does in our lives when we truly surrender to Him. The final verses here from our passage in Colossians chapter 3 and over all these actually can you read this out loud with me? And, and over all these virtues put on love, love which binds them all together in perfect, perfect unity. to Put on what? What is it? Love. And not the way the culture defines love, the way Scripture defines love. One theologian said it this way about this passage. He said, Love is the most important moral quality in the believer's life, for it is the very glue that produces unity in the church. Believers will never enjoy mutual fellowship through compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, or patience. They will not bear with each other or forgive each other unless they love one another. To try to practice the virtues of chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, apart from love, is legalism. And that's what a lot of churches step into when you start to get in the cart before the horse. They must flow from love, which in turn is a fruit of the Spirit-filled life. Nothing is acceptable to God if not motivated by love, including knowledge, faith, and obedience. Love is the beauty of the believer, dispelling the ugly sins of the flesh that destroy unity. And so how about you today? Did, any, did anything that we talked about, I don't know if you're just here filling in time, if you were bored on Sunday morning and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go somewhere and sit in a for an hour or two. Okay? I, don't, I don't know what brought you here today. But today we have looked at some passages of Scripture. And I believe that the Word of God is powerful and I believe that what we have looked at today there is bound to be something that God is wanting to say to each one of us. You know what God? need to think about that. I need to take some steps to act on that. There are things that I need to, perhaps I haven't fully put off yet from the old way of doing things. And there are some things that I need to put on and I need to be very intentional about that. What we choose to focus on determines everything else. Are you actively striving day by day and engaging the help and support of others and the strength of God to put to death those things that Scripture warns us about. Because as I said earlier, anyone who is in Christ should view sin as seriously as he does. Is that what you do? doing? Is that what I do? We think we should. we should. And I want you to keep in mind that the instructions and the guidance that the Bible gives is not designed or intended to take away our joy or to make our lives miserable. It is quite the opposite. Um, I see people all the time thumbing their nose at the teachings of Scripture, doing the opposite, and their lives end up, what? Better? No. Mm-hmm. Time and time again, devastation, devastation, devastation. It's almost like God knows what he's talking about. It's almost like Scripture has some truth contained in there. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yes. One of my uh, other pastor friends shared this quote, and this is my final quote for today, that is this. Change is a process, I'm going to say process because I'm Australian and that's how we say it. (laughs) Change is a process. As my heart changes, so do my actions. It's not the other way around. If you change your actions, but not from the heart, then you are going to step into legalism. You're going to be doing some good things for the wrong reason and ultimately for a wrong motivation changes the process As my heart changes so do my actions and I would encourage you I would encourage us all to allow the incredible person of Jesus Christ the full reigns open opportunity to take control of our hearts to take control of our hearts to be able to bring about the change so that everything that comes out of us flows from that attitude of heart change and love there. Victory over the things that the enemy will use to destroy us does not come about by just trying harder in our own strength. It comes when we truly surrender our lives, our whole lives, to Jesus. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, I, I thank you for this letter from, from that Paul wrote to this church um, uh, a couple of millennia ago. I thank you for the relevance of it. I thank you for the story of life change where it does depict a before and an after, where it portrays the fact that we need, we desperately need to be fixing our focus on you, that we need to be setting our our hearts and our minds on things above. And I pray that for each of us here today, Lord, that you would be, your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives, that you would be prodding us and helping us take whatever next step it is that we need to take in seeing that become a greater reality in our lives. Help us to surrender our lives wholeheartedly to you. Help us to practice what we've been singing about in these songs today. May you be central. May you be glorified. May you be the the center of our focus. And may you use our lives um, however you see fit as we seek to do that each day. In Jesus' name we pray.